You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. This is part one of what will be a series of episodes to look at some of the reasons why conspiracy theories become popular, why they spread, and why so many people seem to believe at least some of them. Oh, but those are fringe elements that believe this stuff, right? I think you'd be surprised. Just taking the United States, according to Statista, uh, who looked at this stuff in 2019, 11% of Americans believe the moon landing was faked. 15% believe that HIV was created by the CIA and purposely released into the populace in order to reduce both the African-American and homosexual populations in the country. 19% believe in chemtrails. 21% believe that the Illuminati secretly pull the strings and control world events and governments. 22% of Americans think climate change is a hoax. 23% say that 9-11 was a false flag or inside job. 27% believe that aliens are being hidden by the government in Area 51. 29% think there is a deep state working against Donald Trump and his supporters. 30% believe that search engines, such as Google, but not just Google, all the others, search engines are somehow discriminating against conservatives. I assume that's conservatives that believe that. And a whopping 47%, that is almost half of the Americans, believe that John F. Kennedy was not killed by Lee Harvey Oswald or was not killed solely by Lee Harvey Oswald. 7% of Americans believe in the reptilian conspiracy, which is that shape-shifting reptiles from either another planet or another dimension secretly control everything in the world. And another 7% say they are unsure. So take that as an aggregate. That's 14% who at least give it some credence. You know how when you were younger, you were told, oh my God, you can't do drugs. Drugs will mess you up. This is your brain on drugs, frying egg in the pan. Marijuana is the gateway drug. It makes you crazy. It makes you into a sex fiend. It makes you hyper. It makes you into a murderer. It makes you hallucinate. This is obviously said by people who've never smoked marijuana. And then, of course, because you're curious and you're young and you're trying to become your own person, you try it. And it does none of those things. It makes you a little bit hungry, maybe a little bit horny, and then a little bit sleepy. And so you kind of think, well, if that drug isn't so bad, I wonder what the other drugs really do. So in that way, it's a gateway drug. I like to say that Kennedy is kind of a gateway drug of conspiracy theories. Nearly half of Americans believe that Oswald either didn't shoot Kennedy or didn't act alone. The official story is that he did act alone. 
which means that 47% of Americans believe that since 1960, we're talking 60 years, various elements in the government and the Secret Service and CIA and FBI and the military and all the rest, including all the presidents, both conservative and liberal, have been lying to the public. Well, once you start thinking like that, you start thinking, well, if they're lying about that, about killing the president of the country, what else are they lying about? And the obvious next thing to do, the logical thing to do is, well, what do they deny? Aliens. They deny that there are aliens. So maybe there are aliens. And then chemtrails, and then lizards from Orion, and then Google hates conservatives, and whatever else. And the interesting thing is, is once you start getting into this mind frame of distrust, all someone has to do is present a quote-unquote theory. All they have to do is toss it out there. If anybody in a position of authority or in a position to know better says, no, no, that's not true. Well, because you're already in this mind frame, you think, uh-huh, well, of course they'd say that. What are they going to do? Admit it. And you don't even have to do the work of creating your own full-fledged theory. Many people just ask a question. I'm just asking the question. And today, people will simply kind of run with it and turn it into all sorts of ideas. You know, the old, is it true, sir, that the press person asks, is it true, sir, that you no longer beat your wife? Uh, 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 no, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, so you still beat your wife. There's a famous story about Lyndon Johnson when he was running for governor of Texas, and uh, his political opponent was a pig farmer, and he told his press people, hey, start seeding the rumor out there that he has carnal knowledge of his stock. And the press guy said, my God, we we can't call him a, a pig fucker. And Johnson said, well, let him spend his time trying to deny it. Now, that's a great story. Is it a true story? I don't know. I first encountered it in Hunter S. Thompson's political book about the 1972 presidential election, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. Now, Thompson was a gonzo journalist, which I'm pretty sure is something that he created. The idea being that if there's not something interesting to report, then go out there and do stuff and then report on what people do in response to what you do. Not make up facts. Go out there and actually do things. For example, he went to a young Republican's meeting in a bar and pretended to be one of them, though how he passed himself off, I'll never know, and started talking about all these rumors he'd heard about the Democratic uh, candidates. Well, you know, I heard that they're pedophiles and they're this and they're that and they cannibals. Oh, and as people got drunker, drunker, they believed this. And then he wrote about that. So... Hunter S. Thompson and gonzo journalism was not necessarily about making up facts. It's not about making up facts. But it was about inserting yourself into the journalistic process. Very postmodern. It's a recognition that a journalist is a person and that anything they write, no matter how objective they seem to be or try to be, will necessarily be subjective. I mean, I guess you could probably trace that all the way back to Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. He created the nonfiction novel which seems like a contradictory term, but it isn't. A number of revolutions in communications technology, and thus communications techniques, takes this kind of acknowledged subjectivity to a whole new level. Before you know it, you've got computers, you've got the internet, you've got people, normal people, not people like Thompson who had to have an editor who thought that what he was doing was worthwhile enough to publish what he wrote and peers to critique his work and his methods. But suddenly, anybody can write stuff down 
and it can be shared on this thing called the internet and it can potentially reach millions of people. Then that turns into videos and, well, podcasts. And then social media comes along and the way that it presents information or decides how to present information is is, uh, somewhat problematic. And if you allow yourself to pay attention to it, it would almost seem like we're in a swarm of constant conspiracy theories and lies and hashtag fake news and all this stuff. I don't know that it's actually that new a thing. The reach is certainly new. The speed at which it happens and the number of variants that proliferate uh, has certainly changed in the modern era. But people believed conspiracies a long time ago before there were telephones even. Hell, before there was electricity. And the speed at which this information comes across our zone of attention, because, you know, we still work and we still raise children and have to walk the dog and things like this. It's not like we got any more hours in the day to allow all of this information to come into our brains. So the speed at which we encounter this information and these theories often can lead to misunderstandings, which then get spread very quickly because we're in a real hurry to get things done and do other things. And like a game of telephone, it just expands and slightly distorts. And what started off as something slightly wrong turns into something that's really quite wrong indeed. And then, of course, you have, shall we call them unscrupulous people, who understand that this is the system now. This is the way that we communicate. This is a very powerful communications medium. And they try to find ways to leverage that to their advantage for whatever whatever their motivations are. It might be useful to look at what is a theory. We call these conspiracy theories. What is a theory? Google says it is a supposition or a system of ideas intended to explain something especially one based on general principles independent of the thing to be explained. Dictionary.com, definition number two, says it's a proposed explanation whose status is still conjectural and subject to experimentation in contrast to well-established propositions that are regarded as reporting matters of actual fact. And their sixth definition says it's contemplation or speculation. So that seems to kind of fit. Uh, The word theory came into English from Latin around 1600, which means a viewing or a contemplating. Its its opposite is kind of a hypothesis. A hypothesis is an idea that's proposed for the sake of argument so that it can be tested. So I think according to these definitions, we can say that these are theories. I'd say that they kind of fall into two different categories. There's misinformation and then there's disinformation. The two words are sometimes used as synonyms or used interchangeably, a little bit like how inflammable, flammable, and inflammable all mean the same thing. Uh, But I think that's uh, not terribly useful. Misinformation, according to Merriam-Webster, is incorrect or misleading information. Dictionary.com says it's false information that is spread regardless of whether there's an intent to mislead. It literally means wrongly informed. Disinformation, dictionary.com says it's deliberately misleading or biased information, propaganda, and manipulated narrative or facts. And Wikipedia just says, point blank, disinformation is false information spread deliberately to deceive. So misinformation is stuff that for whatever reason is incorrect and people are spreading. Sometimes we don't understand something because we just we didn't quite catch it or we misunderstood something at the very beginning. Or maybe later we caught it, but we didn't really 
take. So we sort of misremember it before we communicate it to somebody else. Or when it was first communicated to us, it was communicated somewhat imperfectly. And then we sort of fill that in with what is very often called common sense. It just makes common sense. The problem is there is no such thing as common sense because everybody is operating subjectively. And so there is no real commonality there apart from the fact that we're all homo sapiens sapiens and we eat and sleep and things like this. I'll give you two illustrative examples, both of them from the Bible. Believe the religion, don't believe the religion, but there's no denying that for Western civilization, the Bible is certainly a part of our shared heritage and mythologies. So let me pose a question to you. In Genesis, these are both Genesis stories. Question number one, why were Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Go ahead and answer. There's a good chance that you said, because they disobeyed God. But that is not what the Bible actually says. So if we look at Genesis 3, which is where the fall of man's story occurs, Eve's hanging around, serpent comes, says, hey, what's up? She says, oh, this is pretty good. Living here, it's great. But uh, we're not allowed to eat from this one tree. God said, don't do that. He said that we would die. And the serpent says, oh, psh, you're, it's, you're not going to die. Go ahead and eat it. Trust me on this. So she's already been lied to because she eats it and she doesn't die and she gains wisdom. And then she gives it to her husband, Adam, and they eat it. And then God figures out pretty quickly and he curses the serpent and casts them out. Sounds like they got in trouble for disobeying God. But Genesis 3.22, I'll quote it. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so he kicks them out. So there were two special trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were not allowed to eat from, and the tree of life, which allowed you to live forever. They were only forbidden from eating from the first one, so they were clearly eating from the second one, which meant that they could live forever, but they would not understand good and evil, which means they would not be able to understand opposites and dualities and thus be able to create things. Remember, Adam has a job in the garden, and that is to name things or to give them some kind of final form. But God doesn't want them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they do. And now God says, uh-oh, if they now eat from the tree of immortality, they will be like us. And it's worth noting that in Genesis, there are two, two gods really talking. There's a singular God and there's a plural God, which means that God has the knowledge of good and evil or opposites or duality and lives forever. Humans lived forever, but didn't have that knowledge. Now they have that knowledge. So therefore they cannot live forever or they basically are gods. So they got to go. So they're kicked out. This is really quite a different interpretation. Now fast forward, Cain and Abel and the flood and Noah and all that stuff. And we come to Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. So the people post-flood had all come together in a single place, speaking a single language. And because they have this knowledge of good and evil and they're able to actually create things, they make these kind of awesome bricks and they start building this really tall tower. God destroys the tower, scatters them, confuses their single language into a bunch of different languages, and that's that. Why does God do that? So this is question number two. Why does God confuse their languages, scatter them, and destroy the tower? A lot of people probably say because it was arrogance to try and rise up into the heavens. 
But that is again not what Genesis 11 says. This is what God, again in the plural aspect, this is what God says in Genesis 11.5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan or do will become impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And then the Lord scattered them over the earth. There's nothing about arrogance. There's nothing about them trying to become like God. Instead, in both of these stories, what we see is God trying to keep his job or their job. In the Garden of Eden, now that they can create things, they can't live forever because that's the only difference between God and man is that man doesn't live forever. God does now that they've eaten from the tree with the knowledge of good and evil. And even with just that, even with short lifespans, they're able to do these incredible things like build these really tall towers. I mean, God doesn't say, ooh, I'm so angry, I'm going to scatter them now. God just says, rather mischievously, come, let us go and scatter them and confuse their language. So God's just trying to keep God's job. This is why it's so important to always go back to the source whenever possible. How is it that so many of us have these incorrect ideas in our heads about these two stories? Well, maybe they were told to us when we were younger, and that's what the people who told us said they meant. And then you have to ask the question, did those people believe that? Had it been passed down to them incorrectly, or were they simply choosing a particular interpretation, ignoring what's actually in the book, but kind of paraphrasing it in order to get us to do things in a certain way? Again, was it misinformation or was it disinformation? One thing's for sure, give people a little bit of information and they will begin to try and turn it into something like a narrative or to try and create a a context for it and fit it into a larger picture, even when they don't know that larger picture. In the case of people who believe the Bible is actually somehow true, which for the record I don't, an interpretation of, say, the Tower of Babel, you shouldn't try and be arrogant because that makes God angry and then God punishes you, then spreads out into a whole bunch of subsequent behaviors and belief patterns and even thought patterns. And that happens because of the way that we evolved. We are pattern-seeking creatures. Imagine that we evolved on the savanna. Quite high grass, you're walking along, doing your thing, maybe thinking food would be a good idea, let's go get some. You think you see something or maybe you hear something and your mind immediately begins to try and put together from the little bits of information that you have some kind of a pattern to come up with a prediction. A, is it food that I can hunt down and kill and eat and bring back to my folks? Or is it something that's going to get me, thus ending my life and I need to get the heck out of here? Same is true not just in the hunting realm but in the gathering section of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. These edible berries have a tendency to grow next to these kinds of trees, I see those trees, maybe there are some berries there, let me go look. There's a bit of a joke in the parody religion Discordianism called the Law of Fives, in which everything is based on the number five in the universe. In their main book called the Principia Discordia, they say, quote, all things happen in fives or divisible by or multiples of five or somehow directly or indirectly appropriate to five. This is what the Law of Fives is. There's a correlative of that known as the 23 Enigma, which is a belief in the significance of the number 23. Supposedly, William S. Burroughs, the writer of Naked Lunch and Nova Express and all these other things, he believed in this. And Robert Anton 
Scott Wilson, one of the founding members of the Discordians and sort of a counterculture writer and thinker. He says Burroughs was the first person he'd ever met to believe in it. Wilson hid lots and lots and lots of 23s all through his works, his fiction, his nonfiction. So the 23 enigma is just a corollary of the law of fives because two plus three is five. So actually the 23 enigma is tied into the law of fives. Could be a clue buried in the very fabric of our reality as to how nature and the universe works. The shortest way to go about it is think about the number 23 and then live your life, but be thinking about the number 23. And eventually you will start to see 23s everywhere. Obviously it works better if you're going for five and you're saying that everything somehow relates to five or is divisible by five because you're gonna have a lot more quote unquote evidence. But 23 is actually quite nice because it's not such a common number. The interesting thing is if you do this, you will begin to see 23s everywhere. The fact of the matter is that you could probably choose any number and find the same series of patterns. This is what's known sometimes as confirmation bias or selection bias or apophenia. Apophenia is the tendency to perceive connections and meaning between unrelated things. It was a term first coined by Klaus Conrad in uh, writing about the beginning stages of schizophrenia. Schizophrenics very often see lots and lots of connections and patterns where in fact there are none, which are then sort of fueled by hallucinations, which the mind creates, partly fueled by this belief that things are connected. And so then the hallucinations occur and thus more proof is generated. And so it goes on and on and on. As Kurt Vonnegut Jr. writes in his novel Galapagos, our brains are just too big to do us much good. They just cause all sorts of trouble. Even in random things, we have a tendency to see patterns. So you combine this genetic inherited tendency to see patterns in things, even where there may not actually be patterns, and brains that are frankly just too big for the day-to-day process of survival throw that into an environment in which information, and by information I mean ordered signal. I don't necessarily mean that it's valuable or not valuable, but I mean it's, say, words instead of just noises. So throw that into an environment in which information is coming across our field of attention very quickly and multiplying and proliferating at an astonishing rate. The amount of information in the world total doubles something like every 18 months or something now. And frankly, I'm a little bit surprised that more people don't believe conspiracy theories. Those are some of my musings on some of the reasons as to why conspiracy theories seem to be so popular these days. As I said at the top, we'll occasionally have an episode like this, but usually the episodes will simply explain a particular conspiracy theory, its details, its history, maybe what it means. And not everything we look at will be patently untrue. Not everything is ridiculous. Some things, it turned out, actually did happen. So yesterday's conspiracy theory becomes today's shameful incident. So we do want to keep an open mind. But as the banner photo on the Skeptical Inquirer Facebook page said today, keep an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. Thank you for visiting... The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.